You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie, and today we are so excited to welcome author Andrea Chapela and translator Kelsey Venata to talk about their new book, The Visible Unseen. Andrea Chapella has a degree in chemistry from the UNAM National Autonomous University of Mexico and an MFA in Spanish creative writing from the University of Iowa. She's the recipient of multiple awards, including Mexico's Jose Luis Martinez National Prize for Essays by Young Writers for The Visible Unseen. Her stories have been published in the journals Tierra Adentro, Este País, and in various anthologies. She was named one of Granta's best young Spanish language novelists in 2021. Kelsey Venata is a poet and translator from Spanish and Swedish. Her book length translations include Damascus, Atlantis Selected Poems by Marie Silkberg, which was longlisted for the 2022 Penn Poetry and Translation Award, as well as Into Muteness by Sergio Espinosa and The Eligible Age by Berta Garcia Fayed. She published Rare Earth, a chapbook of original poems in 2020. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting us. So this is such a fun uh, little book, especially if you like to pick things up, not really knowing what they're about and then getting to sort of experience them. Uh, very, uh, I feel like that goes a lot with the theme of this, experiencing them with no idea what you're getting into a little bit and then uh, getting to see things in a certain way. So to give us a little uh, introduction into this book before we get to chat about it, we are going to have a little bilingual reading. So Andrea is going to read uh, a little bit from the intro in Spanish, and Kelsey will read portions in English as well. Thank you, Nat. So yes, as you said, um, I'm reading from the intro that's called uh, The Act of Seeing, A Little Fragments. El acto de ver. No recuerdo cómo inicia la discusión, pero sí que es enero, que Chicago está cubierta de nieve y no se puede estar fuera. Desde Iowa crucé cinco horas de clima y campos inhóspitos para visitar a mi amiga A, que estudia allí el doctorado. Vamos a cenar a casa de unos amigos comunes, dos escritores y una fotógrafa. Creo que la discusión empieza durante el postre, cuando todavía queda una botella de vino. Alguien, tal vez yo, Hace un comentario sobre algún tema científico o sobre la cena vegana o sobre la tesis de A. Alguien, alguno de los artistas, decide actuar de abogado del diablo y preguntarse cómo puede la ciencia ser confiable, quiere decir verdadera, si las teorías cambian con el tiempo y muchas veces se contradicen. A ello tratamos de explicar por qué precisamente esto es lo maravilloso de la ciencia, lo que la separa del dogma. Los detalles de la discusión no son, no son importantes y he olvidado varios de los argumentos. Basta decir que A, olvidan Basta decir que A y yo estamos a un lado defendiendo la ciencia y los artistas del otro, poniéndola en duda. Sobre todo recuerdo mi frustración como si habláramos idiomas diferentes y fuéramos incapaces de comunicarnos. Cuento esto para llegar a un momento preciso. Busco un ejemplo innegable. Tomo uno de los cuchillos de la cena y lo dejo caer al suelo para ilustrar la gravedad y las leyes de Newton. Me enredo y no logro convencer a nadie. A me interrumpe y vuelve a explicar lo que yo ya dije. Me quedo incómoda. Sé que la desesperó mi falta de rigor. Por primera vez, 
siento que al elegir la escritura me estoy alejando de la ciencia y de ese mundo que me ha rodado desde niña. I don't remember how the discussion began, but I know it took place in January when Chicago is covered in snow and it's impossible to be outside. From Iowa, I crossed five hours of barren countryside in harsh weather to visit my friend A, who is getting her PhD there. We planned to eat dinner at the home of some mutual friends, two writers and a photographer. I think the discussion starts during dessert when there's still a bottle of wine left. Someone, maybe me, makes a comment about some scientific topic or about the vegan meal or about A's thesis. Someone else, one of the artists, decides to play devil's advocate, wondering how science can be perceived as reliable, that is true, if theories change over time and often contradict each other. A and I try to explain why precisely that is the marvel of science, what separates it from dogma. The details of the discussion aren't important and I've forgotten many of the arguments. Suffice it to say that A and I are on one side defending science and the artists are on the other casting doubt. More than anything, I remember my frustration. It was as if we spoke different languages and were incapable of communicating with each other. I tell all this to arrive at one particular moment. I'm searching for an irrefutable example. So I grab a knife from the table and drop it on the floor to illustrate gravity and Newton's laws but I get all muddled up and fail to convince anyone. A interrupts me and explains what I just said over again. I'm uncomfortable. I know my lack of scientific rigor annoys her. For the first time, I feel that in choosing writing, I'm distancing myself from the world of science that has surrounded me since childhood. ¿Cuál es el nombre para el silencio que ocurre entre el rayo y el trueno? Se pregunta el poeta asturiano Joan Bello, Asisto a una lectura de poesía en la que participa y semanas después todavía sigo dándole vueltas a esta idea. ¿Cómo describir ese momento? Un rayo es una descarga eléctrica que ioniza las moléculas de, del aire, atraviesa la atmósfera en cuestión de milisegundos, calentando el gas y expandiéndolo. El aire caliente aumenta su volumen hasta chocar con las corrientes frías. Se contrae. Un movimiento rápido, violento. El silencio entre el rayo y el trueno es el quiebre de la onda de choque. No existe una palabra para nombrar el proceso completo, pero todos reconocemos la, la expectativa, contenemos el aliento, el aire se expande, se contrae, ruge. What is the name for the silence between the lightning bolt and the thunder? Wonders the Asturian poet Joan Bello. I go to a poetry reading he's part of, and weeks later, I'm still turning this idea around in my mind. How can that moment be described? A lightning bolt is an electrical discharge that ionizes the air molecules. It cuts through the atmosphere in a matter of milliseconds, heating the gas and expanding it. The hot air increases in volume until it crashes into the surrounding cooler air currents. The air contracts, a rapid movement, violent. The silence between the lightning bolt and the thunder is the crack of a shockwave. No one word names the full process, but we're all familiar with the feeling of expectation. We hold our breath, the air expands, contracts, rumbles. Regreso a la interrupción de A. Fue como un rayo, una especie de catalizador que hizo que me percatara de cuánto me había distanciado de los conceptos y el lenguaje científico. De la ionización y expansión que siguió, obtuve claridad. Quiero volver a acercarme a la ciencia, mirarla con nuevos ojos. Por eso comienzo con esta confesión. 
A mí la ciencia me parece bella y al escribir quiero explorar esa belleza. Tal vez las páginas siguientes sean solo un intento de aferrarme a todas las partes de mí misma y no soltarlas. I think back to A's interruption. It was like a lightning bolt, a kind of catalyst that made me realize how far I'd strayed from the concepts and language of science. From the ionization and expansion that followed, I gained clarity. I want to get close to science again, look at it with new eyes. That's why I must begin with this confession. To me, science is beautiful. And when I write, I want to explore that beauty. Perhaps the pages that follow are simply an attempt to cling to all the parts of myself and never let them go. Thank you guys for giving us a little introduction uh, to a bunch of questions <laughs> and uh, a bunch of questions to ask ourselves and interrogate about the way that we see things and the way we're looking at things. Um, and so obviously the three sections of this book, glass, mirror, and light are all connected and ways of seeing either ourselves or through things um, or things in general. And so Andrea, I'd love to hear how it, this book became about those three objects and the, the act of seeing through or around those three objects. Um, if there were others, that you were sort of thinking about and it came narrowed down to these three um, or just the decision to have this book be about those three things. Thank you, Nat. So the book started with glass, um, with the idea, with me see, saying out, lo out loud something I've known for a long time that science couldn't know or didn't know what glass was, if it was solid and a liquid. And I read in a poetry class out loud from a Wikipedia article saying that about that. And a poet in that room said, oh, that's beautiful. And it staggered me <laughs> because I did recognize when he said it that it was beautiful, but I couldn't understand why. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so that's where it started with me asking myself um, if I could see science and its language as more than that. And so I started as more than what it was for me, which is something that had deep meaning, right? The words in science have actual mean stuff for me. <laughs> they are not just words many times. But for the poet, they were just like beautiful words that, that open a way of seeing that was very strange mm -hmm. for him. And so I started thinking, and at the beginning, I thought I would write about glass, mirrors, and the eyes. Those were the three things I came up with first. And they all had this, uh, I liked the topic of seeing in the middle of it. I didn't know how important it would be or that it had like nice echoes with the experimentation and the contemplation that science does. All of that came later, or I understood later, maybe even after I finished the book. Um, and so when I started writing, I started with glass. Uh, each section I made separately. Every section took around three or four months uh, of preparation. And then when I was preparing to write the eye one, glass one, I kept getting distracted. I have most of what I researched for that. And I kept getting distracted because I knew what that section needed to be. But also in that moment, I think I couldn't write it. Uh, and I still sometimes feel like it's missing in the book. Mm -hmm. 
I feel like I have to go back and one day Kelsey is going to say like <laughs> so many years later and now now that we've published the book you come up and write it <laughs> and it's like, that would be great <laughs> we'll sell it to someone um, but the point is when I was researching the eye and just being confused because the I section for me went back to my relationship with this character, A, in, and she was really sick when I was writing the book. And so it, it was felt really difficult to write about her in that moment. And then I read this book called the history of, about the history of light and it just shook me so much. It inspired me so much that I just needed to write my own history of light. And that's how the three sections came to be. But sometimes I feel like I'm cheating by publishing a book that I know it's somehow unfinished. <laughs> and Kelsey, what was uh, what was your initial sort of reaction or feeling about this like project when it got to you um, in terms of translating it and trying to translate something that uh, is so much about language itself? Yeah. Um... So I, I translated the first essay in this book, the one about glass, uh, before this book had been published in Spanish. Uh, and so actually the translation is sort of an, it's an earlier version, a slightly different version, the one that we initially published in Tupelo Quarterly Magazine. Um, but I just, I just sort of, yeah, I was enchanted by this work from the first time that Andrea shared it with me, we had worked on translating some of her poems previously, um, but it's really my first experience of translating nonfiction. And so to me, a lot of the things that I love come together in, in this book. Um, I, I mean, I really do love working with great sentences and Andrea writes great sentences, um, but, but it's also, it's a very poetic kind of text. It's quite hybrid, which is another of my own kind of interests as a writer. Um, each, of the, each of the essays has a different form. The first one is numbered sections. The second one has kind of a continual, um, each, each piece begins in the same way and kind of circles. And then the final one is, um, final section is, or the final essay is sort of a, a series of um, like linked paragraphs about light. Uh, so yeah, for me, it's, it's been quite a, quite a pleasure to get to work with, with this text. Um, and, you know, creative, creative writing is the field that I'm, that, that is also where I'm comfortable. I am a poet. I went to school for that. Um, so it, so the part that was new for me was thinking about how, scientific language and poetic language have a lot in common, actually. Um, there was a lot of reading and a lot of research that I had to do to kind of get my mind around a lot of the, the really scientific concepts in the book. Um, but, uh, but, but that was also, yeah, a really delightful challenge. And that's, the, that's how I usually, when I'm explaining this book to people, that's what I usually say first, is that it's a book that is trying to kind of find these overlaps between um, scientific and poetic language, for example, how both use metaphor to try to express the, the unexpressible. And that uh, you helped me transition into my next question, which was going to be about Perfect. Uh, just, Andrea, if you could talk a little bit about metaphor um, and the idea, which I think, especially now at a a time when I'd say like the public is very 
consumed with science and like scientific language um, more so than uh, maybe we have been at other times because it's been sort of at the forefront of a lot of our conversations recently. Um, the the and knowing like science scientific fact as like knowing and having truth that is sort of the the facet of it that I feel like we're focused on right now and so a beautiful like meditative example of how not knowing is also the beautiful part of science and the fact that we may never know was such a refreshing thing to read right now a reminder that no matter what someone tells you as a scientific fact that could change tomorrow it could all of a sudden become not fact anymore um and so this also felt like a very uh a very necessary thing to read I think to just kind of reset people's uh minds a little bit if people feel overwhelmed by needing to know things and needing to know information um a little bit of acceptance and seeing things in a different light uh, was really refreshing. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the your work with metaphor between scientific language and poetry and creative writing and sort of that idea of not knowing and uh, and seeing the beauty in the not knowing part of science. I love the question. I have so many thoughts. Um, I'll start by saying, so I'm, even if this is my English debut in some ways um, as a book, I am foremost a fiction writer and a sci-fi fiction writer. And I think in my fiction and uh, my short stories and my novels, I'm not very metaphorical. I don't write with a lot of lyrical language, I think. Well, Kelsey has translated me. Maybe she'll know. But I think my prose is very... Um, crystal clear in many ways um, and and so this was the first book where I had deep I had to think deeply about those things and and then maybe it's also because sci-fi it's you literalize things that are metaphoric <laughs> and you make mm -hmm. them you make them plot part of the plot and so in some ways for me it's there <laughs> but not in how I build sentences around and so it was very strange to start to think about metaphor in science. Um, and the book I went to back, I went back a lot about is written by a scientist. The one it's in the at the end of the book, there are like the things I used. And it's a book by Theodore Brown, who was also one of the authors of one of my chemistry books when I was studying. And reading his books and his thoughts about how metaphor worked in science, where it just cracked my mind open. Because I couldn't unsee it once I started seeing it. How, and I think what happens with science and metaphor, with language and science, and this fact of unknowing, I think science is a human endeavor. It's how humans have decided. It's one of the many ways, I think art is another one, in a ways of contemplating what's around us or inside us and trying to express it and understand it and maybe do things with it, right? Um, because scientific thought can lead to technology and advancements in that regard. But I think um, it is still a human endeavor with human language. And in that way, because of that, I think science 
the art of doing science, the, the big history of science has been trying in this idea of being subjective and looking for the truth, being objective, sorry, that's the other way around, being objective <laughs> and looking for the truth. Uh, there are so many like fail safes inside how science is made so that it can be not less human, but it can, everything that makes us human and unreliable, can, we can keep out of it. And so knowledge is more important than the human that made that knowledge. And knowledge, and there are, many, there are a few things in science that are set in stone and everything, and you learn very quickly that everything is, it's true until you find one example against it. And then it, come, it can come crashing down and there are so many important examples of people just researching one theory for hundreds of years thinking it's true. And then one person coming and saying, that's not it. This is the brilliant idea and it's easy and it's in somehow beautiful and this is now truth, right? And so that's, I don't think science is uh, the, science as a whole is, and this, like afraid of being wrong because being wrong is moving forward because being wrong is having new sets of ideas and new sets of facts and looking at things from different angles but even if all of that is true and even if we have math with this this, this language we've created as humans to be able to say this is true and this is false <laughs> and it's such a wonderful thing we cannot share with each other and we cannot use that knowledge if we don't put it into words that are ours. And those words are always imperfect again. And they're always unprecise and cannot hold everything, especially the things that are too big or too small for our experience or are too out of our reach, like quantum or like what happens between big bodies of gas, like the stars. Um, and I, and the thing I found out writing this book is how science has, as I think does poetry, but um, what Kelsey was saying, by trying to explain and put into words something that is, um, it's hard to hold. Um, it has to, it requires metaphor to be able to explain what is happening. And for example, one of the, my favorite examples that I came uh, to uh, with this book is, how when electricity started to be a thing and we had to explain to each other, hey, now we have electricity, it's this incredible thing that's going to change everyone's lives. And they started experimenting with it. Uh, they started using uh, the language of liquids because they thought it was a fluid. And so, so much of the language we use to talk about electricity, like the current, um, is still about how it was liquid. But then when they started, um, trying to research it more like a liquid, they bump into the fact that the experiments were saying, no, it's not, it's another thing. But we still have this moments of it being back to being a fluid that runs right around the cables as water does to the plumbing system. And I think that's pretty how, even if we know new things about how to talk about it, even in science, some of that language stays with us. Some of that metaphors that someone had to use in the beginning to explain this is what's happening. It moves like a fluid, even if it's not one. I, I think I, I went far. <laughs> that was a <laughs> was really a good question, Matt. And 
Kelsey, just back to you real quick. If you want, if you had anything else to uh, to say about the idea of metaphor and also um, translating metaphor specifically, um, maybe not just in this work, but even in the greater idea of translating metaphor and what mm. either how that may be difficult or um, what kind of uh, care you have to take with both languages as you do that, since you're already comparing something to something else um, or using something else to describe it, um, but then moving between languages with that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, have a few, I guess I have a few thoughts about that. Um, one is that I, I keep coming back to this quote that I heard recently in a keynote address with English Pen. They had a international translation day and one of their keynote speakers was Gitanjali Shri, who's a novelist, uh, and she was talking about how um, writers often compose intuitively, was her, that's her, kind of her wording, um, but translators sometimes have to come along after that piece is written, and they have to be able to pick it apart and understand it completely and so clearly in order to sort of find wording for it um, in the new language, but then of course not to over explain it in, in the new language either to kind of to suggest what was suggested. Um, but it, it requires a bit of like a disassembly is how I felt with this, with this book as well, that um, I had to do a, just a lot of kind of digging for the right language to use to describe some of the concepts that Andrea includes in this book. Um, you know, she mentioned this section on um, on on quantum mechanics, and just you know, that's that's a field that's I'm really not comfortable in. So a ton of just a ton of reading articles um, and kind of mining that language to put back together uh, some of the things that that she's describing. So that's what kind of comes to mind um, that that working with metaphor in translation, at least for me, it has often felt. Um, pretty, it has to be sort of logical in a way, even if the initial metaphor um, exists in that realm of kind of um, intuitive composition, if that makes some kind of sense. And then uh, I wanted to ask if there were any, while working on this, uh, Andrea and Kelsey and translating it, were there other uh, sort of subjects that you either came across or discovered that you may want to interrogate in this way? Sort of the way that the light section came to you, Andrea, while you were working on a section on eyes and then we're like, no, it's it's gotta be this one. Because mm -hmm. um, it would be such, when I finished, I imagined just more and more versions of this with just different objects. Like you mentioned the glass objects lesson and uh, just a sort of series of essays in different forms like this, interrogating these objects from both a poetic and scientific stance. And I just imagined how fun it would be to read, but also I'm sure maybe like a little maddening to write. <laughs> <laughs> you made your way through all of them. Um, but I'd love to hear if there were any that came up or any that you think would be interesting uh, 
to interrogate in that way? Well, I, I think I'll write the I one. I have a lot of it in my head. <laughs> like I even know the form, but, um, and I recently saw A and I told her, I think I, I'm going to do it now. <laughs> and so we'll see, maybe I'll come soon. Um, but more than other objects, what I've been, I've been, I'm always on the lookout for different ways or different places where science and art meet. And I do have more essays that I've written in Spanish. I wrote for a magazine that was about science and technology for a while, and they let me do whatever I wanted. <laughs> and so I wrote a lot of essays uh, that were about the strange um, things that I found in between uh, science and, um, and art, or that for me were like that. For example, that uh, Galileo's first job was after he got his doctorate or something like that, he was, he had, they gave him the job of mathematically describing how Dante's Inferno would look like and where it'd be. <laughs> and so he went in and had to wow. do that. And then there's another thing that I, a, a mathematical project called um, the four color, the, the, it's a theory, uh, the four color theory that's about how many colors do you need? The problem is super simple. It's how many colors do you need to color a map so that uh, not in any, no neighboring country has the same color. And the answer is four, <laughs> but how do you prove that is really, really hard. And yeah. it was the first problem that was proven by a computer. And that just made mathematicians mad <laughs> because, and, and the thing that interests me in that theorem was, that the thing that made mathematicians mad is they said they can, that we cannot do that. It's not beautiful if a computer does it. It's ah. only beautiful if you can make it by hand. It's a human is doing it. And that just cracked me. <laughs> so I wrote about that thing, which was harder to write than I thought it would be. Um, because it's hard. In the end, it's very hard math to understand. And so I have a lot of these points of where I think history, like history and science and something that I understand as art or something that finds beauty in, in science or that just makes me super emotional that I think show us how science, the thing I love most about science when I was studying it were all these places where I could see that one person just went to the farthest reach of human intellect looking for an answer obsessively yeah. right like this like search for knowledge that just and how the search for knowledge sometimes is not one person but it's like thousands of years of people asking questions and just building it little by little until someone in the 19th century finally cracks it right it's so uh, inspiring for me so I, I look for all these things and I have a list of them and Whenever I have the chance, I, I did several for that magazine and I, I would like to keep writing about those moments. Like I think of creation and scientific inspiration and where at the points where science and art meet. I'll just add that um, that, that makes me think of my favorite quote that you include in the book. And it's a, it's a book that is in conversation with a lot of other writers and there's a lot that's quote, quoted material in the text itself. Um, but my favorite quote is, I'm pretty sure it's Feynman 
and it is it does not do harm to the mystery to know a little more about it. I think that's just one of my my favorite moments. It, it follows after the section where you're discussing how both Newton and Goethe use prisms to try to understand the relationship between white light and, col and color, colored light. Um, and that it's, it, it felt to the romantics like such a threat for Newton to talk about the rainbow in these mathematical mathematical and scientific terms that they felt like they've sort of reduced the beauty of the rainbow. So just to say that that's one of my favorite parts to translate in here and that I think it's, yeah, it's one of the things that Andrea does really well as a writer is to show us that knowing a little, knowing a little more doesn't harm the mystery of, of the, the beautiful thing we're observing. And then Kelsey, do you have any uh, things that you would think would be fun to explore uh, having translated and sat with and thought about these three topics and the idea of seeing, um, are there any thoughts or ideas that you think would be that it kind of set off a light bulb in your, in your head that you thought, oh, this may be fun to look at from that perspective or to look at the scientific side of this artistic thing that I've only ever looked at artistically yeah um I I mean I think what one idea one thing I've been thinking a lot about I'm, I'm currently living in Florida um and there's just a completely new natural world around me that I'm not used to at all I've grown up primarily in the west and I live in Tucson so I'm here temporarily in Florida and um and I'm just fascinated by the bird, by the bird life. You know, I, I never expected to sort of become a birder. I feel like it's a thing that a lot of people start to do the older they get. And now here I am. But, um, but I think it would be really interesting if we took this, this uh, concept of, of sight um, and, and looked at, you know, how different, how different animals see and experience the world. I think there could be, yeah, like a totally, totally new book in there. Um, there's a section in this book about mirrors and how you can do a cut. There's a mirror test to see if animals are conscious of themselves. Um, but then as Andrea expresses so well, how do we know that that's the only test for being aware of yourself, you know, sight. So I think there could be a lot more that could be interesting about, I don't know, Andrea, if you're so interested in the, in the animal world, but um, other <laughs> ways of sight and other ways of sort of like, yeah, how, how other species do it, how other species experience themselves in the world. I just wanted to say that is so funny because I actually should do something about that one day. <laughs> my sister, who is a biologist, she is crazy about animals and has like the most amount of animal facts. Like whenever I need an animal fact, I call her. Nice. But then my older brother, he is very fascinated about birds because he's a musician. And when I went traveling with him, we would stop and he would say, like, can you listen to that bird? Do you see how it sounds like it was made by a machine? It's very weird. And so he relates to the sounds of birds with what he does with his music. So it has already so many connections for me, whatever you're saying. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see if I ever become fascinated by birds. <laughs> you have to be a little older. Maybe. And then I wanted to uh, sort of wrap up by talking about the format, which we mentioned a little bit already there, each essay having 
its sort of own form. Um, and Kelsey, you talked about it a little bit in the translation and originally seeing this, but I also loved the last line of the intro, which you read, and I'll, I'll just reread it now. Perhaps the pages that follow are simply an attempt to cling to all the parts of myself and never let them go. Um, and I loved the idea of this being sort of something that you want to keep talking about. And in the intro, you also mentioned annoying the people you were talking to by like, just insisting on it. And so I love the idea of something like this existing as a way for you to put those thoughts or ideas down. Um, so if someone gets annoyed or doesn't want to talk about it anymore, you can like, just take this and you can go you can think about it later because you will continue to think about it after you read this. Um, so you need this so that you can keep thinking about it. Um, but I really loved the uh, the format, especially of glass, because it felt like a really accessible way to talk about uh, an idea like this um, because it allowed you to sort of think about something and take a break and then come back and ask another question about it, which is sort of the way a conversation happens in that way. Someone may ask you a question and you can think about it and you can answer them. And then you may ask another question. It's how a lot of scientific conversations happen, like a but if then what? And then that happens and then what? Um, and it sort of moves forward in this way by continuing to ask these questions and move forward. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit more about how you chose the format for each uh, essay. And you also do mention in the introduction that this lyric essay model sort of came to you and you realized that was how this needed to happen um, because it felt like it served the material best. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I started reading or understood that this form existed, the lyrical essay, uh, when I was in Iowa, um, which makes more, more <laughs> which makes sense because John Dagada is there. Um, although I never met him, it's a form that was around us a lot. And I think, yeah, I read um, Maggie Nelson there with, among others. And I just loved it. I loved Loet so much. I love what it did. Um, and I, and how she, I think what, my, how I explain it to myself is what Maggie Nelson is always using her philosophy in the way she sees the world. Like, like she sees her the way through, she allows herself to see the world through how much she study and how much she knows about philosophy and use that lens to look at these very different subjects and just open them up and crack them up in different ways that you would never thought because you don't have her expertise. And I said, like, maybe I can do something similar. Maybe I can allow myself to look at the world in a scientific way um, and then open it up for everyone to see how it works when you are. And the first way I explained to myself how an essay or a lyrical essay works is you take one subject and what you want is to show someone else all the ways that you had your own will look at it and will so in all the ways that you engage with it, uh, like a human mind will engage with one thing. And so it goes, it, it allowed me to go into memories or fantasies 
or quotes or books or movies or everything I could that my mind could come up around that thing. That that is my very broad, simplistic way of thinking of the essay. And then a lyrical essay allows you space, which I was always so fascinated by in poetry. Um, with the line break, I'm very bad at verse. <laughs> I don't I don't like I don't enjoy it, but I so much enjoy it. Uh, how much space there is and what the line break does. And I think the lyrical essay allows that between paragraphs and between fragments. And that it allows, it, it hands it over to the reader to say, you can build the connections. I think I know them. Like for me, the connection between all the passages is in the attempt of arranging them. I think that's how I tell the story. But uh, then it is to the reader to figure out how that works. I don't have to say it. And I think that's, it's very nice. And so each of the essays, one of the big things that I had to do was figure out the form of it. And of course, the first one, the glass one, uh, the form is Bluets, because that was the first one I, I had fell in love with, with. And then I studied how Bluets work. And then I tried to figure out how to make it work for me. Um, because Bluets, it's probably like, it's the numbers are more because of like a philosophy um, text, right? Where there are num where you put numbers in, where the philosopher would say, um, how is it called? Un tratado filosófico, Kelsey. I have philosophy trait. That second word, I cannot say it. Uh, a theorem? Or uh, no, a treatise. A treatise. Treatise. Uh, that, like I can't spell it, but I cannot, it couldn't form in my mind, in my mouth. That. Um, and so for me, I, I started thinking about the numbers more like steps in um, like an experiment. Um, and then a friend of mine said, well, if you have numbers, you should quote them. You should, they start, should come back. And so like starting to play with the form in my own way once I had it. Um, and so each essay for me has like a model. And then part of the way was to figure out how what of that model I like and what of that model fit in how I could make it my own. Um, so maybe it was also looking <laughs> and studying a lot of these forms and to learn how to do it and like just let, let them go through me and see what comes after. And then Kelsey, I don't know if you had anything to add, but I, I remember that uh, you, when I we talked about your initial uh, thoughts about the essays, you mentioned uh, the format of the others as well, how, uh, which one's the second one? Uh, Mirror starts uh, with the same sort of introduction to each piece. Um, and then the overall flow of light as well. That was yeah, hard. I, that's that first hard. sentence. <laughs> yeah, the, that's true. The first, um, so, so the second essay that you're talking about, the one on mirrors, um, I worked a really long time on just the, the first page. Um, I'll read it in English. I could begin by saying that mirrors are useless if no one looks in them, or the history of mirrors is the history of self-contemplation. Um, and and sort of the reason I, I felt like this, you know, this piece really set the stage for the for the rest of how I translated the, the other um, sections in this particular essay. 
uh, and it had a lot to do with, with how I handled in translation all of the instances of the words around sight and seeing and reflection and contemplation. Um, in the Spanish, uh, you have these reflexive pronouns that attach to the ends of, um, of verbs, mirarse, contemplarse, to see oneself, to contemplate oneself, which in the English, if you're using oneself, myself, themselves, it gets quite clunky. And I, I, I first and foremost wanted to make sure that um, the reader in English could, could really access the poetry of, of this writing. So a lot of the work um, translating this part was, was thinking about, yeah, this idea that, uh, you know, sometimes I, I needed to kind of change which of those verbs I was using in a certain instance. Um, but I didn't, I also didn't want to use every time um, to look at myself in the mirror, to look in the mirror. So, so I followed Andrea's lead, which was to use a lot of other ways of doing that. So um, you'll find uh, verbs like regard myself, uh, regard oneself, contemplate, um, I myself, I, I myself. So that was, there was a lot of pleasure in, in that and, and a big challenge, of course, as well. Uh, in sort of placing placing those words in this in this particular essay, I don't know if that answers your question at all. But in terms of form, that was that was kind of a big part of of this second essay. I don't know. Was the was the start because all the all the fragments in that essay start the same in Spanish and it starts right. same in English. But I don't remember, I, I have the feeling we talked a lot about how, what that, because that phrase comes up all, it's how how we would say it and <laughs> what to do with the conditional in Spanish, how to put it in English. Like there, like there was so much conversation just in that, podría comenzar, mm -hmm. and that goes on and on and on and how we were going to do it so that it, so that it put in English, how do you say it so that could perform what the Spanish did in all of the pages. I think that was also a big conversation we had. Yeah, for sure. So I, I could begin with, but then there are just a few where it's, I could begin the day, um, I could begin by, but but the phrase, like Andrea saying, the phrase had to hold across all of those mm -hmm. sections. And then having played with form and like found new forms uh, of creative writing through this project and other things you're both working on. Um, a question I love to end with is what forms or mediums have you not experimented with yet that you either look forward to, you really want to, maybe you're afraid to and aren't sure if you can yet, um, or what, uh, what mediums you want to try creating with next i've come to realize that i should just like let life uh guide me <laughs> to the mediums because after uh the visible scene someone um the person who made the cover the beautiful cover read the visible scene in spanish and that allowed me to make a new project um called uh, unfolding which kelsey also translated and then that book has my like a very meta um, essay along with the photography of Fabiola Menkeli, who did the cover then for the English edition. Um, 
And so then I, I had never thought I would work with a visual artist or that I would start being fascinated by visual arts in that way, in the way of wanting to know how they are made um, mm -hmm. until I did that. And in the same way, I've never written a script. Or I've written poetry, short stories, nonfiction, novels, but never a script. But I think that's something that life is saying I'll be doing very soon <laughs> too. So I just keep finding these forms when I, <laughs> it, uh, there, there is this, um, there is this interview um, that one of our friends uh, made with me in um, Literal Magazine. And in that one, I told her that I felt that I always need to be in a state of doubt, which also means in a state where I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> it <laughs> sounds productive. more beautiful, a state of doubt, but in the, it's like, I need to be very, I need to learn. I like, I like using writing as a way of learning as a way of being deep into a question and not necessarily trying to find the answer, but just engaging very deeply with it. And so I, I think sometimes I just find questions that make me <laughs> have to do other things and learn new things. And those are my favorite um, questions. So I I think, yeah, I'll, I'll keep just moving around, making my translators and editors crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking um, this this would be a wonderful book to, to do this with, but I, I really admire um, Sawako Nakayasu. She has translated um, Chikasagawa and, and then she wrote a book of her own, which I guess you would kind of call experimental translation, which I'm not sure if it's really a defined genre in everyone's mind, but, um, but what she did was she, she wrote a book alongside her translation of this book of poems and she calls it mouth eats color. Um, and it's basically her, her being in conversation with the process of translating Chikasagawa, um, some of the words from, you know, that were clearly like with her and in her mind during the translation process um, find their way into her poems. And I think basically the line just gets kind of blurred between like, or it brings into question that that idea of author original authorship, right? Because the new text that gets created is kind of this wonderful um, um, amorphous conversation between the two of them, and, and she generated, you know, an entirely other book um, that she wrote alongside the the, the more um, traditional, I suppose, translation of these poems. So that's something, and you know, especially since Andrea and I we have a, a close working relationship. Um, we're friends. I feel like this would be, you know, a cool text for for me to um, to do some of that kind of writing with and and take on some of these ideas and concepts for myself. What do you think mm -hmm. about that, Andrea? I love that. You're welcome to my words <laughs> always. <laughs> there are so much <laughs> yours, but also, well, we'll talk. <laughs> we'll talk some. We'll talk. Yeah, ideas because, are hatching. Yeah, because also I well, Kelsey knows this, but I'm so intrigued by language not in the sense of my well in the sense of my own language but I also learned I've learned lots of languages and moved through them a lot and yeah and and when I did translation yeah for me thinking about how different languages relate to each other mm -hmm. is very important and even like the fact of how we do this when we're working together is so exciting because even if I'm just writing in Spanish the conversation between us happens in Spanish and English and in a weird mix that we've created 
And so, yeah, I've been thinking about languages a lot and how, how to take advantages of all the languages I know to write yeah. something. And so I, I would love if any of those thoughts, if I ever write them, sparkle something in you that will make you want to do something else. That I think that's, I think that's one of the biggest, one of the nicest things about what we do, all the things that come, that are out of your reach or out of your hands that can come up out of something you wrote mm-hmm. and to be able to inspire something else or to be in conversation, not even inspired, but to be in conversation with something else and to continue to have a long conversation of creation with other people. I think that's fascinating and I just really want that. <laughs> Yeah, that's the best thing that can happen out of any text, I think. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to chat with me about the visible unseen. Like I said, it was such a fun read that kind of just takes you out of whatever moment you're stuck in and asks you to take a look at some things through a different lens, which I think all of us could use right now. And we have copies on the shelf at Skylight Books. If our listeners would like to grab a copy, you can do so by coming by the store or by shopping online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Our guests again today were Andrea Chapella and Kelsey Venata, and we hope to see everybody again soon and all of the projects that you have currently brewing. We're excited for them over here at Skylight. Thanks, Nat, and thanks, Skylight, for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.